I'm screwed. <laughs> okay. Hi, everybody. Um, I've just muted. You're all right, Harlan, aren't you there? I yeah. don't know. Yeah, you're can perfect. You we can hear you. Okay, okay. welcome Great. to the Great. Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is Saturday, the 15th of April, 2023. My name is Audrey Ann from County Mead in Ireland, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I will be your host for today's study, and our co-hosts are .es, Veronica C, and Sue L. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the question and answer session. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen at any reason, for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seven tradition. The money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading the recordings, and we also send contributions to the intergroup, Arizona Serenity in the Desert Intergroup, and also World Service Organization. We will post the link to the previous week's recording, <clears throat> and they're available by clicking on the link posted in the chat function. And I will now host you, hand you over to Harlan G., who is with us from Akron Heights in Illinois today. Thanks, Harlan. Hi, thank you. I'm in Arlington Heights, Illinois. I'm about a block from Poop Park, which is a famous landmark in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Poop Park is a great piece of real estate in downtown Arlington Heights that is completely owned by dogs doing their business on it. So that is quite, quite the site, is Poop Park. Anyway, I'm really glad to be here this morning. Uh, it's nice to be in uh, in the greater Chicagoland area and uh, really, really excited. Um, we are talking about the promises and we are in the promises and we are going to discuss this morning the promise that we are up to, which is fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. And of all the promises, these are probably the ones that are the most sensitive to most people. I know they are the most sensitive to me. I grew up in a family that was chaotic at best. My mother, my father fought constantly. My father was not a businessman. He was, we were one flat tire away from homelessness throughout most of our lives. Uh, if it wasn't for his social security and my mother's disability, I don't know how we would have functioned. I was lucky enough to live in an area where there were affluent families. I was lucky enough to live in an area where I made wonderful friends, but life in my home was extremely tenuous at best. I was conscious of things at an early age that I should not have been conscious of. What I was conscious of very specifically is that we were in dire financial straits. And even though I vowed that that would never happen to me, what happened to me was I'm not as bad off as my parents. I'm not one flat tire away from homelessness, but not by any stretch of the imagination. But I wish that I could retire. I wish that I had a better financial life. I wish for a lot of things that we all wish for, that we all wish for. 
growing up, I knew inherently that things in my house were not normal. My house wasn't normal. My family, such as it was, me, my mom, and my dad were not normal. There was a lot of shame involved. There was a lot of pain involved. And there was a lot of fear involved. And it seemed to me that my life could not, did not, would not, and never would match up to what I saw in the homes of the friends that I went to play with. It just never seemed to match up at any level. They had things, they had, my father drove a 10, 15 year old car that was always breaking down. They had brand new cars and brand new this and brand new that. It always seemed that I compared and despaired when I would look at my friends and how their parents did as opposed to how I did. And it gave me a lot of shame. What else happened in my life? The other very, very mitigating factor in my life was I was a scared kid for those reasons, but I was also a scared kid because I was open game for anybody with a criticism. When you are a fat kid, you are open game for anybody with a wisecrack. I remember there was a kid in my school. I went to Green School for K through six. And there was a kid in my, in my uh, school. His name was Elliot. And he walked up to me one day when I was in about third grade. And he said to me, you're fat. And he punched me right in the nose. And man, was I bleeding. He just popped me one right in the nose. Well, metaphorically, that is exactly what had happened, what was going to happen to me over the next several decades of my life. As I watched my friends dating, dancing, going out with girls, doing the things that boys do with girls, as I started watching people going off to college, I graduated college too, but I had to go to a commuter school. I didn't have good grades. I was, I was massacred by this disease. I did graduate, but by the skin of my teeth. As I went out into the world, the world sent me a very, very strong signal. And the signal that it sent me was, as a fat boy, as a fat person, you are absolutely unacceptable at any level. If we were in ancient India and there was a caste system, I would have been an untouchable. I was ostracized by anybody and everybody that you could think of. And whenever somebody starts a sentence with, I hope I don't insult you, or they start a sentence with, take, don't take offense to this, but, or they start a sentence with, with all due respect, my blood runs cold and the hair on the back of my neck stands up because I know that as much as people say, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but you are. I am going to get my feelings hurt. And it seemed to me at a very early age, for the reasons that I just told you, and many other reasons that I just told you, I found myself emotionally looking at life through a fence. And they were all out in the distance, and they were doing the things that they did and I could not join in any of the reindeer games. I just could not join in any of the reindeer games. 
I wanted, I, I played a lot of baseball in the neighborhood, but I wanted to be better. I wanted to be a base runner. I wanted to be a good fielder. I wanted to make the team. I wanted to be that baseball player. Couldn't be that baseball player. Too fat, couldn't even fit in the uniform. I wanted to do things with my life. I had planned a very, very different life than what you see me living today. My life is good. My life is bountiful. I have friends. I have all kinds of things in my life that are just fantastic. However, I still have to pay the price for the mistakes I made. I still have to pay the price for everything that happened to me and the things that I missed out on. And I pay that price every single day of my life. The things that I missed out on, the things that I couldn't do, I lack those experiences that other men, other people have today. Trust me when I tell you, I am still paying a very, very hefty price for what happened in my life. I looked at the world and the world scared me to death. And one of the unfortunate things in my life was that my parents were unable to really discipline me. My mother was mentally ill. My mother was physically not able to do anything. My dad could not mete out any discipline. My dad was 54 years old on the day that I was born. By the time I entered kindergarten, he was 60. By the time I entered uh, eighth grade, by the time I was in freshman in high school, excuse me, when I was a freshman at Mather High School, my father was as old then as I am today, and I'm about to be 69 years old. My dad was not one generation in front of me. My dad was two generations in front of me. He was older than many of the grandparents of my friends. I couldn't, I couldn't have a worse situation. No discipline, eating what I want, doing what I want, and the draconian discipline, the draconian penalties that the world meted out on me were more than I knew what to do with. And so what I did was I recoiled. I recoiled as if from a hot flame and I became a quitter. I became someone who just when faced with challenges was a quitter. I became a person that didn't want to live in this world. I became a person who saw no point to living in this world. I saw no point to it. Why was I going to live in this world? So I could be a fatso? Why was I going to live in this world? So that I could exist for you to make fun of me? So I could exist alone? And the physical pain and the emotional torture of this disease wreaked havoc in my life. And sometimes, sometimes, when I think back on what I don't have in terms of money compared to my friends, when I think back on what I don't know about women, about life, about different things, my lessons were very different lessons. But what I missed out on would fill 10 life would, would fill 10 libraries. I'm actually in a library now, so that's why I was thinking about a library, but it would fill 10 libraries. But what I did get was an education. And I got a very different kind of education, but people scared me to death. I was, I was friendly with someone who about, I would say a number of years ago said to me, you are an extrovert 
with a social anxiety. And I think that describes me perfectly. I'm an extrovert with a social anxiety. And so when I meet people, it is very frightening to me at first because I don't know how they're going to react to me. Now, I have to tell you, my weight today is relatively normal for other people to look at. I don't stand out in that crowd anymore. But in my mind, in my my mind's eye, I still see a 600-pound man. I still see the man that was admitted to Skokie Valley Hospital in April of 1983 at 513 pounds. I still see the kid that when I was at the doctor's office, I weighed in at 689. So the bottom line is for me, when I was 689 pounds, when I was 700 pounds, when I was four or 500 pounds, I saw Steve McQueen. I saw Sean Connery. I saw Ernie Banks. I saw whatever it is I saw. Now that I'm where I am in my crazy adult brain, my compulsive overeater brain, I still see Dumbo the elephant. I still see Bushman the gorilla. I don't see who I am or what I am. And Bushman, if you're not from Chicago, was the gorilla at Lincoln Park Zoo. And that's why his name is etched in my brain. Bushman was from Lincoln Park Zoo, which is in Chicago. And so people scared the crap out of me. They they confounded me. I knew that inherently when I met people, if they were men, they had experienced things and done things and gone places that I could never go and I could never do. I remember being the last kid that I knew that had never seen an ocean and had never been on an airplane. And I remember my friend, one time they were all going to Las Vegas. And he said to me, you're going too." I said, I don't have the money. He says, you're going too." That was the first time I was ever on a plane was at the behest of a very dear friend of mine who said, you're going with us, you're going too." And so I went and it was exciting. In OA today, I have seen the Mediterranean. I am about to go to Rimini, Italy in November. I will see, I think it's the Aegean, I'm not sure. I have seen the Atlantic. I have seen the Pacific. I have seen the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I have been around. I have been in 38 of the 50 states. There are very, very few places in this country that I have not been to. I have been, my feet have been everywhere from Jerusalem, Israel, to Anchorage, Alaska, from Anchorage, Alaska, to New Orleans, Louisiana, from New Orleans, Louisiana, to Cape Cod, from Cape Cod, back to San Diego, back to Seattle, Washington. I have crossed this country many, many times in service to this wonderful, wonderful organization. And you know, the funny part is, it didn't cost me a dime. I had to board the dogs. Yes, I had to do that. Yeah, I did. And I missed work and I had to pay for my parking at Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix. But I have crisscrossed this country many times at the behest of God or this program, whatever you prefer. And it has been my honor and privilege and pleasure. I have seen the sun come up over Lake Tahoe. I have seen the sun come up 
over the Atlantic Ocean, and I have seen the sun go down over the Pacific. I have seen this country. Fear of people is a very big thing with me. And what really made the difference in my life was this. Now, I want to remind you how long I have been doing this work. I have been doing this work for a very long time. I have been in this program for 44 years. I didn't just roll in off the pumpkin truck. I was afflicted with this disease as a baby, as an infant. There is, sorry. Um, sorry. Okay. There is very little that I could tell you. Uh, oh, I think my peppermint stuff is wearing off or something. I don't know. But anyway, that's okay. The bottom line is, is sorry, that's the thing. But the bottom line is, is that people still scare the crap out of me. But what really made the difference for me is this. After going through this paralyzing fear for so long in my life, it petrified me that somebody was going to criticize me. It petrified me that somebody was going to reject me. It petrified me that somebody was going to make fun of me or not like me. I wanted everybody to like me. Well, here's the reality of the situation. Nobody likes everybody. I'm going to say that again because it's key to what I'm about to point out. Nobody likes everybody. So if the truth be known, there were people I wasn't crazy about. Didn't mean I didn't love them. Didn't mean I didn't cherish them. Didn't mean I didn't value them. But it just meant that when I'm hanging out on a Saturday night, I may not want to be with that person. I may want to be with someone else. Now, the reality is I expected, wanted everybody to like me, but I didn't like everybody. And my fear of people is rooted in my compare and despair. And where is that rooted? In fear and in ego. I am so wonderful, everybody needs to love me. And if there was a day in my disease, a day where everybody in the world was, it was Love Harlan Day, Love Harlan Day. Everybody was wearing a t-shirt that says, I love Harlan. And everybody was carrying a sign, I love Harlan. And cab drivers and cops and firemen and Doctors and lawyers, I love Harlan. I love Harlan. But there was a guy in outer freaking Mongolia who didn't have a sign and he didn't have a t shirt. And he said, I don't even like Harlan. I would go to outer Mongolia on the next plane and I would turn him around. I would do whatever it took to turn him around. And if I knew you were upset with me and I knew you didn't like me, I couldn't sleep through the night. Here's the key. Now, remember, I've been around here a long time and I pointed that out for a reason. The reason that I pointed that out is if you're brand new, you may not 
be at this place yet. But here's the place I'm going to describe for you. When you first come into Overeaters Anonymous, whether you're on the anorexic side, the bulimic side, or the obese side, the compulsive overeating side, the first while that you're here is don't eat, go to meetings. Don't eat, go to meetings. Don't eat, call your sponsor. And that's as it should be for a while. What happens after a few years? You start to realize that areas of your life that you didn't know were sick are getting healed. Areas of my life that I didn't know were destroyed were getting healed. And so what happened to me was I became, after working a lot of steps, emancipated from the bondage of having to have everybody like me. Now, what we study about in step three, what we talk about every single day, and this is part of my morning routine, it says here that the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. I'm reading from page 60. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If only his, if his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. Let's stop right there. Let's take a look at what we just read and plug it into this promise. Fear of people. Fear of people. I can live with the fact that you may not like me. I can live with that because I have been emancipated from that through the working of the steps, and I am okay with that. Now, if I have done you wrong, I want to make amends for that. If I have harmed you, I want to make amends for that. But what I don't do today is try to control every human being's emotions as they relate to me, and nobody is going to control my emotions as it relates to them. Oh, boy. Sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. So now what I have is I have a program, and I have a, I have a very specific instruction in the program. And the instruction that I have from this program is that God is the director, that he is the father. I am his children. I am one of his children. He is the principal. I am the agent. He is going to decide. He will make the decision who's in my life. I have to do certain things. Absolutely, yes. No question about it. I have to suit up, show up, and, so, and mostly shut up. Yes, God is going to be the director. He will filter people. He will usher people into my life, some for a season, some for a reason, some forever. 
but he will usher people in and out of my life. He will usher me into the lives of other people. He will make the decisions for me. Now, do I want to lose certain people in my life? No, no, I don't. Love them, want them around. That's not my decision. That's not my decision. So what I'm going to do is show up, suit up, and shut up. I'm going to put God first and work on my relationship with God. Because it says on the top of page 63, when we sincerely took such a position, what position is that? That God is the principal. I am the agent. He is the father. I am the child. So when I take that position, all sorts of remarkable things have followed. I have somebody in my life today that is very, very special. That's why I'm here. I have somebody in my life today that I think is fantastic. We had a new employer being all powerful. He provided what we needed. If we kept close to him and performed his work well, I can't control who likes me, who doesn't like me, who wants to go to the, here with me, who wants to go there. I can't control that. I cannot control those factors. I have no ability to, to control any of this. So what I have to do is do what it says in another big book and not have anything above God. And when I start making people my God, finite people, temporary people my God, I'm in trouble. So what it says here is established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter, we were reborn. What's included in that for me is fear of people. Call me fatso. I'll, I, can, I can deal with it because I have a God and it's not you. I have a God and it doesn't wear skin. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be broken up with. I don't want to be left. I don't want to be abandoned. I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to be tortured. But no matter what happens, the one thing in my life that is more prominent than anything else is that God loves me and that I will be provided for. I have to blow my nose here. Hang on one second. I can't breathe. Okay, sorry. Ah, good Lord. Okay. Ah, that's okay. But the bottom line is, the bottom line to all of this is, I know in my mind 
that people still will scare me a little bit because no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. But when I stop looking up to people and I stop looking down at people and I look at people, my life goes a lot better. And so there is a mechanism to emancipate from, from this uh, free fear of people. This is not something that happened for me automatically. What do people think of me? Most of you, nothing. And that's something that's very hard for people to get over. You see, a lot of times I've taken fifth steps, hundreds of fifth steps over the years, mostly for men, but sometimes women. And there's no difference. There's no difference. One of the things we fear as people, whether we're male, female, whatever we are, non-binary, binary, whatever we are, we fear what people are thinking of us. And here's the truth. Most people, most of the time, are not thinking of us at all. Eleanor Roosevelt said, when thinking about what others consider, when, when considering what others think of us, we must first recall that in many instances, they are not at all. So you're not sitting around thinking about me, but in my ego mind, in my mind that he has an ego, that he has crazy self-involvement, self-seeking, selfishness, you're thinking about me all the time because if I'm thinking about me all the time, my projective mechanism says you're thinking about me too. And the truth is you're not, nor am I sitting around thinking about you most of the time. And so fear of people is healed in my life, not permanently, not permanently. I have to work at it. but I don't fear them like I used to. And lo and behold, the opposite of what I thought was going to happen, happened. I thought that if people stopped making fun of me, I'd lose weight. I lost weight and they stopped making fun of me. Now, sometimes my friends will bust my chops, no question. Sometimes I bust their chops, no question. No question. None of us are immune to that. And I don't want to be immune to that. I love my friends. And, and you know, that's just life. You know, I bust your chops. You bust my chops a little bit. That's fine. That's okay. But I don't have to sit here and fear you. Fear of people. I'm a human being. Here I am. Here I come, world. When I was a little, little boy, there was a TV program called Good Morning World about two disc jockeys from the 60s. Nobody even sees it anymore. Good Morning World. And sometimes I want to just say, Good Morning World, here I am. With all my scars and all my inefficiencies and all of my defects and all the things that I wish were different about me, here I am. Reject me, accept me. Do what you will. I'm not here for your approval. I'm here to love you. But if you disapprove of me and you don't like me, 
I'm not going to lose one wink of sleep. <sighs> okay. And of economic insecurity, our fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. And this is the number one fear that I've had. I know I'm the only one. I know there's nobody here. I don't know how many of you are here today because I can't, I'm not on my computer. I can't really see. But the bottom line is there's a lot of you. And the bottom line is fear of economic insecurity will leave us. I'm the only one that fears that. Now, I didn't do as good as most of my friends, some of my friends. I did better than some, not as good as others. And sometimes I beat myself like I have about not doing as well as I could. And sometimes I just want to scream at myself because I should be retired. I should be able to travel. I should be able to go here. I should be able to drive this kind of car or that kind of car. But you know what? I My bills are paid. I have a reserve. I have a house. And I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. And every day that I wake up, my house goes up in value and up in value and up in value. 300 people a day move to Maricopa County, Arizona. We are the largest growth county in the world. So every day my house is worth more and more and I own more of it. What a lucky guy I am to be alive with no debt. No debt. I don't even carry credit card debt. I don't have any debt except for my mortgage. Paid cash for the car, paid, paid cash for the car, paid, pay all my bills on time. I have a credit card. It may as well be a debit card because when the bill comes in, I pay it in its entirety. Now, I will say this, I am disciplined. I do not go out and spend money that I don't have. I don't recklessly spend money. I make sure that I live according to my means. And every year, I make a little bit more than I spent. Some years are better than others because I'm in sales. Some years are better than others. But did I bring that about? No. What God did was he took my lack of training. He saw that I was selling on the phone in a dying industry. I'm in a dying industry and I'm still paying my bills. I had a conversation a week or two ago with one of my friends in Chicago and he called me up and he says, it's just us. We're the only ones left. And I said, yeah, we're the only ones crazy enough. To we are the only owners of one of these businesses that is still open. All the other owners of these businesses are dead except me and my friend Dan in Chicago were the only ones of the original owners left. So it's kind of funny to think that he and I are the sole survivors. It's pretty amazing to think about that. Now, I'm not a rich man. There's things I can't do. There's things most of you can't do. I wish that I had a little more economic freedom. I wish I didn't have to work, quite frankly. But you know what? I don't kill myself. I work a four or five hour day, six hours, whatever it is. That's, hold on. Sorry. That's about as much as I can be on the phone. I do get distracted at times. 
okay, sue me, but my, my bills are paid. Do, would I like to be richer? Who wouldn't? Show of hands, who wouldn't want to be, have a little more money or a lot more money than we currently have? Okay, I'm not alone there. That's very reassuring. So the bottom line is I have to know that God will take care of it. Sometimes I project into the future. Oh my God, am I going to be working when I'm 90? What am I going to do? God will take care. I'll probably be dead, but God will take care of it. He hasn't dropped me in Lake Michigan now, and he didn't rescue me from Lake Michigan to kick my ass on the beach. He rescued me from Lake Michigan so I could endeavor to do his work well, so that I could put my efforts, my cunning, my senses, my talents, my personality to work for him. Here's what I did get an education in. Now, I may not have gotten an education in a lot of things that I wish I had known, but here's what I did get an education in. I got an education on how to work these steps. I got an education on how to put this first in your life. I got an education on how to help the newcomer. I got an education on how to help people that may not be so new, that are struggling and struggling, and they've been in these rooms for years. I got an education in 12-step recovery. Now, if I had to do you all over again, boy, what I, hold on a minute. I got, hold on a second. Okay. If I had it to do over again, oh boy, would I do things differently. You bet I'd do things differently. But given what I have, I'm 68 years old. I can do things I couldn't do 30 years ago physically. I look better. I can walk better and do better things, do things better than I have in a very, very long time. And while there's breath left in me, I'm going to use that breath to serve God. Now, I wanted things things of the flesh and things of money. And I wanted things and I wanted this and I wanted that. Oh boy, did I still do really still do. I'm still human. But what I know in my heart is that even though I got off to a very, very rocky, horrible start, I came like a horse race. If you've ever seen a horse race, some of these winners, they Going, they're front runners. They they go out in front and they stay out in front. That's not my story. I'm not a front runner. I'm not secretariat. I'm that horse that had big odds against him, and I came from behind. Maybe I didn't win, but I showed or I placed. I was in the money. I'm in the money, and I get the knowledge in my heart that many many times. All the time, every week of my life, every day of my life, someone will send me an email or a message on text, or they will call me and say, your podcast made a difference in my life. I heard you on the meeting and what you said made a difference in my life. Now, the opportunity to do that is open for each and every one of you. I am not in any way 
the owner of a monopoly on that. You go forth and do God's work. And you will see that these promises at the top of page 63 will come true for you too. My dad drove 10, 15-year-old cars. All he wanted for me was a better life. I drove that car off the lot with eight miles on it. Eight miles, paid cash for it. I'm still driving it. Some yuts hit me from behind. He was texting while he was driving. And I had major damage to that vehicle that got fixed at the body shop and so on. I'm fine with it. But he, he hit me, hit my new car, the son of a bitch. But anyway, the bottom line is, this isn't my first new car. Is it a Rolls Royce? Is it a Mercedes? Is it a BMW? No, no. But it gets me where I want to go. I have air conditioning in there in the summer and heat in the winter. And I've got everything I could ever want. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Now, don't think that that means you will not have ambition. Fear of economic insecurity does not mean you will not have ambition. I have ambition to retire. I have ambition maybe one day to win the lottery. I have ambitions for this or that. Now, it doesn't say also you won't have economic insecurity. It doesn't say that. There will be ups, there will be downs. I've had years of my life where my income was way down. Way down. I, I was ashamed, ashamed of how little money I made in a dying industry. Ashamed and scared. But I got through it because I held God's hand. This year seems better than I've had in a while. Now, don't read in or take out. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. That does not mean you won't have ambition. That does not mean throw your money out the window. Some else will come and replace it for you in the middle of the night. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean I can go out buying things I can't afford. That would be stupid. But when I go to the grocery store or I go anywhere, I ask myself a question. Does God want me to have this? Is there anything in that grocery cart God would not want me to have? And if the answer is no, then I'm very, very confident that I can put that, that charge on my card and that I know I will be provided for. I know in my heart I will be okay. So let's not confuse this with anything else. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And what that means for me is in my life, what I always wanted to do was more. I'll do this. I'll say this. I'll go here. I'll go there. I'll put my hands on something. And in putting my hands on something, I will fix it. I can fix it. No, I can't. 
the way that I know that God is here and all is well is when things are what they're supposed to be with a minimum or lack of input from me. Sometimes I speak my truth and it works out well. Sometimes I speak my truth and it still doesn't go my way. They have a name for people like that. They're called human beings. Thank God nobody gets their way all the time. Thank God nobody has their little world where everything goes their way. We, including that person, would be much, much worse off. We intuitively know how to handle situations that used to, which used to baffle us. So sometimes the best thing I can do about something is nothing. And sometimes the best thing I can do about something is something. But I ask God for direction. And when I don't, I notice that my life does not, oh no, does not get better, it gets worse. My life does not get better when I go off half cocked and try to enlist other people to say, Go over and talk to this guy. Go over and do this. Or I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to... No, 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 no. And whatever happens, I know there is a God and it is clearly not me. And what are some of the things that I could use as an example about situations that used to baffle us? How am I going to work this program? Stop trying to figure it out. How am I going to make this person stay with me? Stop trying to figure it out. Speak your truth, and they're either going to or they're not. How am I going to put the food down? Put it down. Stop thinking. Stop overthinking and put the food down. How am I going to find a sponsor? By putting yourself out there. Stop calling me to find you a sponsor. Would you call me if you were going out someplace to a wedding and ask me what size you should wear or what kind of clothing you should wear? But you call me and say, who should I get to sponsor me? How should I know? I don't know what works for you. But here's what I can tell you. If you put yourself out there, God will bring that into your life. God's not stupid. He knows what you need. You got to put yourself out there. You have to make your name out there. You have to make your name known that you need a sponsor. We have many situations that are very, very baffling. And so many of those situations are beyond my comprehension. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I'm here in Arlington Heights to visit somebody that I adore. I'm here in Arlington Heights for reasons that I could never see in a million years not long ago. I don't know what the future holds, not for me, not for this person, not for anyone. But I do know that when I think about being here and why I'm here, it blows my 
mind blows my mind. That we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves works unilaterally. I never thought in a million years I could say in front of a group of people, I have 24 years of abstinence from compulsive overeating. Where in the world would that ever have come to? I couldn't get 24 minutes of freedom from this disease. If I'm coming to Chicago or I'm coming to Timbuktu, I want to know where's the food? How am I going to score the food? I wasn't really worried about anything else. I just wanted to know, how am I going to get away from you so I can eat food wantonly without your critical tongue and eyes on me? How am I going to get freedom from you to go eat what I want to eat and do what I want to do? I don't have to worry about that today. It's okay if you see what I'm eating. I'm not embarrassed by it. It's okay for you to know what's in my grocery cart. I don't have a problem with it. It's okay for you to know anything about me, just about anything about me. I'm okay with that. That God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I don't know what words to say here this morning. I don't know how to, how to do this really well. God is, I, I wish he'd stop making me sneeze and blow my nose, but okay. You can't have everything, I guess. Hold on. <clears throat> but God is doing for me in this moment what I could not do for myself. I am here and I am on a mission I never saw coming. I am here, and I'm not gorging myself with food. I am here, and I'm not spending money I shouldn't spend. I am here, and when I go back, or whether I, wh wherever I am, I am not a spectacle. I am no longer that object of ridicule. Sometimes I think I'm going to be. Sometimes I think I should be because I, I can want to punish myself for whatever reason. Sometimes I look at my life and I'm very, very upset about the mistakes I made. But on the whole, I'm pointed in a good direction. And this is very, very eerily insane to say. But I believe that at almost age 69, I'll be 69 here in about 15 minutes, if I can stop sneezing long enough to live that long. But I'm almost 69 years old, and I'll let you in on a secret. God's got plans for me. And some of the best days of my life, they haven't even dawned yet. That's a strange thing to say when you're almost 69 years old. I know things are going to be okay. I hope you're coming with me. I hope you're coming with me as we trudge the road of happy destiny. I hope you'll be there when I when I get to the end and I can say, it's your turn to take over now. I've done my share. It's your turn now. Because there's going to be newcomers 
and not so newcomers, and they're going to keep coming and coming and coming, hopefully. So we look at our lives and we suddenly realize God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Not if I sit on my ass and hope for the best. Sometimes that works. But what I just got through saying to you is, sometimes the best thing I can do about something is nothing. But when I work for them, that means while that while that gestation period is happening, while the gestation period is occurring, I better call so-and-so and see how he's doing. I better work my steps. I better take a lesson from Bill Wilson, who said, when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day. I better look at the Oxford group influence on this book when it says on page 77, this is pure Oxford group, not me blowing my nose, but okay, pure Oxford group on page 77, when it says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. We fit, we, we, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. That is an Italian salute to the Oxford group by Bill Wilson, because Bill Wilson came under fire from the Oxford group for not recruiting Wall Street guys. And he said, God has inspired me to help drunks. And they said, screw the drunks. We want guys from Wall Street. Why? The guys from Wall Street had what? They had money and the drunks did not. And the, the Oxford group people said, you're not being maximum. We challenge you to be more maximum. Maximum was an expression of the Oxford group that meant you were serving God to the best of your ability. So he put in the big book, my real purpose is to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And what is this book about? It is not about the Wall Street guys. It's about helping drunks. We all remember Bill Wilson. And Bill Wilson will be remembered 50,000 years from now. Can any of you tell me about 50 guys in the Oxford group? I bet you can't. Because Bill Wilson's deeds achieved an instant immortality, and the sun never goes down on what Bill Wilson. And Jim Willis, who founded Gamblers Anonymous, and Roseanne Scholar, who founded Overeaters Anonymous, the sun never sets on the work that these people did. And every one of us is a small portion of the generations yet unborn, thousands of generations yet unborn that will reap the benefits of this program. 
Now, Bill Wilson started out as a very, 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 very up against it guy financially. It was the depression. He wasn't doing well, but he did well at the end of his life. I'm hoping to duplicate what he did. So we have promises all over this book. And yet these are the promises that are most prominent in our teaching. So we have a situation whereby these promises are coming true. And they will not come true if I don't work for them. And they will come true if I do. And so what we have here, tell about your pen. What we have here, thanks. What we have here is a situation where we're challenged. And the challenge is do your work and watch God. Walk to God. He'll run to you. Walk to God. He'll run to you. Help others. You'll see miracles like you cannot believe. There is nothing in this world that you can do to tell me or show me where God was not there when you took these actions. Maybe it wasn't the result you wanted. Join the club. Maybe it wasn't exactly the way you wanted it or the timing that you most wanted. Maybe join the club. But what I can tell each and every one of us is that these promises will come true if we work for them. Very, very wonderful promises. Okay. I am going to be in Silicon Valley next Saturday. You guys will have two fantastic speakers. You will have two speakers that are going to knock your socks off. Make sure your socks aren't on too tight because you're going to have them knocked off. I promise you, don't skip next week. I will be back the week after. I am going to Rimini, Italy in November, the 17th, 18th, and 19th. Maybe some of you can come. I don't know. And there is some chance that the Dublin group will put something together the week before so I can knock out Dublin and Italy, boom, boom, in two consecutive weeks. That would be interesting, too. Maria will keep us informed as to that possibility. Before I turn it over to whomever, I just want to remind you, number one, if you asked a question last 